Welcome to the Techstars Climate Tech Podcast, where we dive into the climate change crisis and discuss how technology and innovations can help save our planet. I'm your host, Cody Sims. Join us as we talk with sustainability experts, investors, and founders about the issues we're collectively facing today due to climate change and how entrepreneurship can help. Derek, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. You're a man of many disciplines. <laughs> and that resonates really strongly with me. I've got a crazy undergrad background in Chinese history and a master's degree in transnational communication and global media. And yet somehow here I am doing climate tech investing. So tell me, how, how does one start with an undergrad in building science and architecture and design, get a master's in religion from Harvard and end up as a VC investing in sustainable hard tech? Great question. I think the thread of the whole journey is the same, which is what's possible and what are we each here to do with, with our lives? I started as a founder. So I spent 10 years building a company from, from New Zealand and I started here and I wanted to build a global business. And I was looking at what are the next mega trends that change the world. And this was back in 2000. And I said, okay, I'll build a company off the trend of moving from the web to mobile. And the whole point was not really about web to mobile. It was about What's possible, right? Can I build a global startup as a kid straight out of university? Is this what I'm meant to be doing with my life? And the, the architecture and design piece is all interlinked in the sense that I think each of us are the architects of our own lives and we can design our own paths and we can change those paths whenever we want. And that creative process of exploring who we are meant to be and how we express that is, I think, one of the biggest privileges you know, that we have as, as individuals. How does that relate to being a founder well, I think founders are much like artists. Artists are almost the purest expression where they pull the middle finger to the world and create their absolutely their own path. Entrepreneurs, I think, are the second best option. So if you're building a company, you have that spirit, you have that palette. If you're investing in a company, you have a privilege of finding those people who are creating those journeys. And you know, to me, it all ties together. Why do I study religion? Why have I gone down that path? I think what's fascinating about that whole thematic at the moment is the way the world is changing in response to that question. Why are we here? What are we meant to do with our lives? What are our values? How do we build a sense of community, contribute, and a sense of purpose, which I think is the key question of the generation at the moment. And to me, I was just fascinated to see well, how have different philosophies and traditions dealt with those questions over the last 3,000 years or more, because whatever you have to say about those different religions, they all try to attempt to answer those questions. So I took a kind of hands-off approach saying, what, what's fascinating to dive into here and what can I learn? And that's really how it all strung together. I love it. I'm a huge believer in, in how important the humanities are and you know understanding our common human existence are to understanding where we all might want to go together. So I totally admire the, the path that you've taken and excited to see where, where you go with it as you're investing in startups. And I guess maybe to that end, why don't you introduce us to Era VC? How did the fund come about and what are you focusing on today? And what are you going to focus on in the future? The fund came about through like a nexus, you know, for me after the GFC, so the last time the world had a kind of what now moment, and I was still building the company that I was in. And I had a what now moment. I was like, what's the point? I got it. I got the idea that I'm building a company and that's an invention. That's a huge challenge. But did I really believe in was it pointing in the best direction at the right problems? And then I realized around 2009, I didn't really know what the problems were. Like I was very honest with myself. I was like, this doesn't feel meaningful enough. There must be a better way to contribute. 
And at the time, I was very worried I would lose the company. And that's why this existential question came about. It was like, well, if all this collapses and I have to let go of everything here, which at the time was my identity, the company was my identity, the 200 people that worked for us, everything about it was intertwined. And I was like, would I be happy to do that again? And the answer was no, unless I was pointing it at something that I was willing to go down in flames going, that was worth it. And I felt like I'm swinging my best swing. That's when I started to learn about the issues, right? Climate, inequality, poverty. I was like, what is going on in the world and how can I contribute? And that became the beginning of this next chapter. My wife and I, we did sell that company. We set up a small charitable trust. And I said, I'm going to use this charitable trust to spin out new ideas that help the world progress. One of the first projects was AeroVC. And that became because after 2009, 2010, I moved fully into sustainability. I co-founded a corporate CEO leadership sustainability group with Richard Branson, which is a whole other story. But through that experience, I got to speak to a lot of the people who'd been talking about this for 20 years, like Paul Hawken, who wrote The Ecology of Commerce in the early 90s, Ray Anderson, Interface Group, where he created Mission Zero as a plan for his business interface to be planet neutral uh, in 20 years from like 1994. Like, these people that have been doing this for decades and decades, and I know a lot of us think, you know, we're at the frontier of what's going on at the moment, but there have been people that have been paving the way for 20, 30, 40 years. And so learning from those people inspired me to decide that I want to commit a large part of my life to picking up from where they left off. And my first entry point was, let's build a fund that backs companies that are going to change the world and create a sustainable future. And as you know, a big part of that right now is climate. It's fantastic. And the, the purpose orientation, I think, matters so much to so many people today as they're mid-career or just getting started in their career, at least it feels to me, you know, I got my start kind of similar to you, it sounds like, right, as the the internet itself was sort of coming about. And it did seem like there was some sense of purpose then, which was let's sort of democratize access to information and, you know, make it available to all. We've kind of seen where that has led with the internet. <laughs> and I think, you know, yeah. many of us are probably realizing that did happen, but it also kind of didn't happen at the same time. And so, you know, how can we all now continue to engage with purpose on things that are maybe more physical and more more tangible and more real for all of us? You know, I, I'm interested for a young fund, you know, you've just had a nice win on paper with Solugen. Maybe talk us through the funding announcement that just happened, but more importantly, really what attracted you to that business at the beginning? Where do you see the the Synbio space going and how do you really see it changing the way things are made in the world? As you said, like we're really fortunate to be one of the earliest investors in Soyugen, which just announced 350 odd million in funding a couple of weeks ago with their mission to decarbonize the chemicals industry. And you know, what was fascinating to us about them when we met them was the triangle of kind of like reducing carbon, producing something just as good, if not better, as a chemical, and at a more affordable price in a safer way that could be produced in a much more distributed fashion. And when you kind of hear these like three bells, you're like this, if they can do this, if this is real, this is how we should be changing the world. Things need to be cheaper and competitive to be able to substitute a current incumbent offering that is negative. That was our very first experience into something that is so industrial. It was our first climate tech investment back in 2017. It became a learning journey for us as it is still around what is synthetic biology? What does it mean? And I think that is just a question that's just being opened up and is explored everywhere from food to chemicals to any industrial process or product. 
as to how does this protein modification, gene modification, create new types of substances, ways in which the world are built around us, as you said, and, and also the building blocks of what build the world. And the building blocks are what we're starting to get to grips with. I think as a culture, we've worked for the last 20 years about using less, being more efficient, saving energy. And we've had this narrative about being better stewards and operators. What I think is coming in the next 10 to 20 years is a really hard shift towards how do we make the world? Because a lead certified building is kind of like a sideshow compared to the amount of energy, carbon, waste in the production of that building in the first place. So I think as a culture, we are starting to realize that's where the big wins are. And the timing, I think, is amazing, both for innovation, industrial innovation, startup innovation, and for venture funds. And synthetic biology, I hope and expect will play a large part in all of that, but so will a lot of other things. Yeah, and I think it's it's a good reminder, too, that we tend to demonize the path that has gotten us to where we are. But on the other hand, if you look at what happened in the 20th century, I don't think anyone set out to burn fossil fuels and use petrol-based chemicals in order to trash the planets, right? These were things that were, at the time, new innovations, new technologies that were helping to lift humanity up. It just so happened there came a tipping point when I think we all realized it was too much. And now we've probably sat on these legacy, we definitely have sat on these legacy solutions too long. And now it's time for the next wave of innovation to help us evolve beyond what has gotten us to where we are and hopefully do so in a better way. What I love about the focus you all are taking at ERA is you're looking at, like you said, building blocks, these big parts of how do we navigate the world around us today to actually have a thriving society and redo the underpinnings of some of these areas that have been built in, I would call it 20th century technologies that need to evolve. Let's maybe look a bit at the chemical space as a first glance. You know, at Techstars, we're investors in 12, which uses CO2 as a feedstock to manufacture chemicals, um, which is obviously a, a really new and interesting path. Solugen plays a huge role in this space in a different way. You know, I'd love for you maybe to kind of go into the role that the fossil fuel industry has played in the chemical industry for the last few decades. You know, I guess there's a reason we call them petrochemicals and really hear your thoughts about where you think things are headed in that regard. Yeah, we are also lucky enough to be an investor in 12, you know, doing fascinating things in that space. I think the reality is a lot of the things that are made up in our physical environment, like if you get into a car and you look at everything, the dashboard and the plastics and the vinyl and everything, all of those things, if you go back to what the building blocks are, they are petrochemical building blocks. And all the chemicals that power the world, for example, nitrogen fertilizer, ammonia, which has been developed in the same way for over a hundred years, is a critical method to how we feed the world, right? But even, even with those breakthroughs, there's still huge disparities. So for example, the amount of plastics used in the developed world is about 20 times you know, per capita than what's used in, say, India and Indonesia. And the amount of fertilizer we use, say, in the US or New Zealand or wherever, is about 10 times. So even just a parity of, well, why is it you know, that some places are using far less and they haven't even afforded the opportunity to use that yet, just as we're realizing we need to do this all differently. So everything from fertilizers, which drives how we feed the world, to plastics, which none of us could imagine day to day how to do all the little things that we do without plastics. Plastics is really an amazing, incredible invention, 
but it has this inbuilt issue that it is essentially oil, right? And we need to find whole new ways to create stuff that maybe doesn't use plastics. We maybe need to create new ways to make plastics. There's all sorts of opportunities and problems, but they're not easy problems, which I guess is what's attracting at least me, uh, you know, me to them at the moment. Yeah. And I love that you, you know, brought up the justice side of things too, in terms of certain developed markets that have access to all of these in an imbalanced way and developing markets that maybe don't and yet are often a dealing with the fact that the planet is warming because for whatever reason, places like India and others, you know, may be suffering disproportionately and B are unfortunately also swimming in a lot of this waste because their governments or their countries have, have often had to buy it to take it off of the hands of the developed nations. So, you know, it just creates this perpetual cycle. You know, I'm interested on the plastic side, you know, in addition to changing the feedstocks that go in, you know, we talked about some of the, the SynBio or CO2-based use cases. Curious if you're doing much work on the bioplastic side, you know, whether plant-based or, or other things, any trends you're seeing there that you think are, are particularly interesting? To go back to your point about the fossil fuel chemical industrial revolution, right? And now we're moving to this kind of biology industrial revolution. You're absolutely right. Like no one, I think, went in it to trash the world, but equally what came from it has been immense amounts of good, right? The increase in living standards and the abilities of what the world's able to, to do now versus what it was able to do in the past has really been a positive. You can't go back and say that we shouldn't have done that. It's just that, as you said, the early warning signs, which came some decades ago, have taken a very long time to come to true attention, right? And the plastic space, you know, about a year and a half ago, or a couple of years ago, I was really interested in this. We were looking a lot all around the world for plastics companies. We have yet to do a deal. We've found it very difficult. So I think part of it is maybe it's a psychological question or a thesis question that we haven't got over, which is, is it better to produce plant-based plastic that is still plastic because the system in the world does not yet know how to deal with plastic. And even if it's compostable, in certain inverted commas, largely it's industrial compostability, right? And that means you need high temperature compost facilities to compost it, and then you need the collection facilities. So a country like New Zealand, which I'm sure everyone thinks is totally green and clean and at the frontier, we have no capacity to deal with compostable plastics or other types of products. And I think most of the world doesn't either. So you've got this question of, are we solving the problem or are we just kicking the can down the road? And at ERA at the moment, we're trying to be more biased towards solving the problem at the root level and not the kick the can down the road solutions, even though it may be an incremental positive for, say, the next decade or so. So what we'd want to find is, can you create a material that is just as good, just as strong, and really biodegrades anywhere in the world? And I think the Coke and all the major bottlers and people that use plastics have done a disservice by tricking us into plant-based bottles and that kind of stuff is like 10% plant, 90% oil. I think people think that's good. They think it's helping. I'm not sure that it is. So we haven't found an answer there. We did look at other things like seaweed replacements and all of them have their challenges, but we're still on the lookout. One of the questions I have is whether for the next 10 something years, this is really a systems change question and not as much a technology question. If you need to create much better systems on how you use this material, recycle it, reuse it, et cetera, what do those business models look like or what do those government policies look like until someone can create something fascinating that actually displaces 
the need for it. And generally, maybe we just need to focus on using far less plastic and just substituting it. So actually not trying to mimic plastic, but just substituting what the goal is, whether it's in packaging or is is it for uh, takeaway or whatever it might be. I love that. And, you know, there's actually a really interesting example of that in in one of our current Techstars programs, um, a company called Dispatch Goods that is helping restaurants reuse packaging materials and providing a, a whole logistic service to enable that. And that's that's an idea where maybe it's not yet a technology problem. It's actually a systems problem that could help address some of these solutions until the technology is ready. Yeah. And I've seen a company doing that for large scale stadium events and festivals where, you know, they're building a, a system to manage the cups and things like that, that you have when you're buying your beer or whatever. And those are not necessarily, maybe they're not venture backed deep tech companies. So they're not for us but it doesn't mean they're not going to be amazing businesses. Let's talk about another big, hairy, meaty building block. Maybe I shouldn't say meaty. I try to avoid using terms that are that are signaling our, our, our old carbon-heavy world. You know, step on the gas pedal is another one that I, I try to not say anymore. But uh, let's, let's talk about concrete and cement. This is another space that's currently radically undergoing change. It feels like there are solutions out there that can be meaningfully improved meaningful improvements from what we have today. You've got companies like Carbon Cure that are sequestering CO2 into concrete. You've got a number of companies. We have some in Techstars like Material Evolution and Alchemy Environmental that are pursuing new means of recycling waste into concrete. Um, And really, clearly, the world is made of concrete. We may have an infrastructure spending bill coming through the Congress right now that's, you know, going to generate a whole lot more concrete in the world. You know, it's currently the, the single most widely used material in the world, responsible from anywhere from 4 to 8% of global emissions. And it's not even just the material that causes a lot of the is- emissions issues. It's the heat used as part of the process of actually generating it and finding a fuel that can generate enough heat to make concrete in traditional ways. So I'm curious. I mean, there's lots of ways you can play here. You can play on the material side. You can play on the process side. You can play on the embedded CO2 side. What are your thoughts on what needs to change in this world and what do you have your eye on here from a venture perspective? So yeah, concrete is definitely right up my alley at the moment, which is a bit strange to get all passionate about concrete. But then I realized my final project at the university was about concrete. I was like, oh, maybe this is fate. As you said, it's the widest used material in the world. It's about 8% of greenhouse gas emissions. The amount of concrete that we use in the last 20 years is more than the whole of the previous century. And you have Africa and India charging ahead, skyscrapers, infrastructure, highways, etc. It's incredible. It's a massive challenge, but I think that's where there's just enormous opportunity everywhere. And so what we're doing at the moment is looking at any different type of way of approaching it. Like you said, there's the material side, which is around the cement and the binder, which is where you have, you know, concrete as binder, and then it's got a bunch of aggregates. The binder is a minority as a component of the concrete, but it's essentially 80% of the carbon emissions when you cook this limestone to create the Portland cement. So I think lots of people are going about it at the moment and saying, are there other ways to combine materials to reduce the emissions, which is interesting. So we're looking at companies like that. I think you know, from our point of view, we want to find people that are coming from outside, like on the peripheries who have a totally different viewpoint and say, well, actually, maybe we should be synthetically creating limestone or some other substitute that removes altogether the chess pieces that are on the board. So a lot of what we're seeing at the moment is people using the same pieces of the chess piece and they're going, okay, if we use them in this combination, we're going to reduce significantly the CO2. 
One of the challenges with that is it all relies on supply chain of the combination of things that they're going to put in, these different slags and, and materials that they mix in together. And I think in concrete, one thing I've learned is it seems to be quite a localized industry. So you have to have localized supply chain of that particular slag, or then you're starting to ship it from somewhere. So there's lots of complexity. So we're trying to find companies that are pointing on a particular leverage point and saying, let's flip it on its head. And can we treat it entirely differently? You mentioned carbon cure or injecting carbon. That to us is super fascinating. So you're capturing carbon from somewhere. It might be somewhere else in the industrial plant that this is located or co-located. It might be from some other local facility. And you're injecting it to help cure the concrete, strengthen it, sequester carbon. That's awesome as well. Like It's actually taking something that we want to get rid of, putting it into something that we need to build in a way that's both getting rid of it and storing it and strengthening it. Again, it sounds like that solution kind of thing. It's win, win, win if it can be as strong and cheaper or roughly the same price and you can deliver the supply. So we're still early on in our adventure in this space. We've looked at a lot of companies in the last four or five months and we're excited about a bunch of them. Carbon Cure is super interesting. It's obviously a much later stage. There's one called Hamdel that came out recently from Y Combinator, which is kind of the thing that we're interested in, like out of the box. Like, okay, let's get the seawater. Let's get the stuff that we require to create the limestone equivalent out of the seawater, sequester carbon in the sea, pull the stuff up. Who knows if this kind of thing can work? But to me, that's what we need, hundreds of those kind of approaches. People who kind of have no business trying to reinvent concrete, trying to reinvent concrete. Because there are plenty of people who have lots of experience in concrete also giving it a go, but I suspect they'll come up with different answers because in a way, they know too much. And I think some of these problems I think we need to know just enough, but not everything. And that's the dangerous thing, I think, about being a venture investor. You don't want to know too much. Like, I don't. Because I think if I know too much, you can start coming with a lot of reasons to why something won't work. And as we've seen, people create things that are extraordinary in defiance of everyone that's an incumbent that says it won't work. So I'm always conscious that I'm going to be one of those people. And one of the ways I protect myself is I can't know too much. I can't know as much as the people on the inside of this industry because it will start to cloud the way we make decisions. I know that might sound stupid, but <laughs> one thing I've learned in this in this business in the last you know decade is diligence is very important to do, but in most cases, diligence will serve to talk you out of a deal. It will rarely talk you into a deal. <laughs> <laughs> Data rooms are where deals go to die, right? The more you learn about <laughs> exactly. it, the more reasons are. Yeah, my partner says that all the time. So he's like, "Don't go in there; it'll ruin you. It'll ruin you." <laughs> Well, we're, we're, I mean, we're investing in audacious things, you know, for a reason. Most of them are non-obvious. Let's kind of dive into the next big topic that uh, makes the world around us, which is steel. Concrete may be the most abundant material on earth, but for some reason to me, steel feels like the thing that is the, the picture of modernization of the 20th century. Giant skyscrapers, steel girders, you know, iconic images of 20th century growth. For every ton of steel that's produced, it generates 1.85 tons of CO2. That's 8% of global emissions at scale. U.S. Steel, which, you know, so famously founded at the turn of the 20th century by some of the, uh, the titans of the age, like Andrew Carnegie, J.P. Morgan, Charles Schwab, they've announced now a goal to get to carbon neutrality by 2050. What's the plan here? What do you think can happen and what do you have your eye on in this, in this area? I think this one is a bit beyond us, to be honest, at this point. We're just starting to come to grips with it, but... You know, as I start to learn about this sector, it appears that the majority of the issue is the heat required to create virgin steel. So when you're creating recycled steel, there seems to be a far less of an impact, but the challenge is it's not 
usable for a lot of the structural and other issues that we need to address. So what seems to be what we might look at in the next year or so is around how do you achieve those temperatures, which are currently achieved through blast furnaces, coal powered, all that kind of stuff, and coke, which is kind of like this ultra pure burnt down coal. And how do you convert that to an electrification process? And so again, when we look at leverage points and say, if that's the leverage point, if that's the thing that's going to change it, what is a bridge that might get you there? Or what is a catalyst that might get you there? What is the piece of innovation or technology that might help that process and make it as efficient as possible? So we've seen different approaches, whether it might be hydrogen or some sort of biocarbon type approach. Again, these are quite large scale industrial issues. I don't know if we're going to find many early stage venture type opportunities. Whereas in the concrete space, I feel like there is quite a lot of ways in which you can tackle that. And still, I think we have to learn a bit more about what kind of innovations could happen. But it seems like the problem is quite simplistic. You've got to get these temperatures in order to create this material. And therefore, the question is, how might you get these temperatures in different ways? Even if you electrify it, if that grid is being powered by something that's not renewable, you still have problems. So you have this entire systems issue for steel, which I think is a multi-decade question. The big challenge, way beyond Techstars and AeroVC venture investment lens, much more the macro lens, is these investments that these companies make, whether it's a cement factory or steel factory, they are like 50 plus year decisions. So the decisions that these companies make in the next 10 years will determine largely the outcomes of what we get from these industries. So it's a hybrid of big industry having to do whatever they can and seeing whatever people on the outside can bring to the table. It's not something we're not looking at. I know that Bill Gates or some others have invested in Boston Metal, which is trying to electrify the process. There's some major green steel initiatives around the world, which are using you know renewables to power those systems. But those seem more like utility scale solutions and not something that seed investor can really play at. Yeah. And maybe it'll be uh, the type of thing where steel has sort of its fusion moment, for lack of a better term, which is maybe it's not modernizing steel, but it's some altogether new material that gets developed over the next decade or two using all the advances in AI and synthetic biology and whatnot to actually create a material that's stronger than steel, right? Who knows? Yeah, that'd be amazing. (laughs) Well, listen, you know, it kind of goes without saying that, you know, these discussions of concrete, steel, et cetera, have huge implications when considering global development. We talked about this a little bit already, but much like with energy, there are parts of the world that are much further ahead on the development curve than others and parts of the world that are less developed that need to continue to be able to develop at as low of a cost as possible in order to benefit humanity today. Unlike energy, renewables are now cheaper than fossil fuels. And so thinking about global equality going forward from an energy perspective hopefully starts to solve itself. Most of the materials we've talked about still have a significant green premium, to use Bill Gates' uh, terminology to them. How do you think today's benefits should be traded off with tomorrow's suffering due to climate change? And unlike building a power plant, most of these technologies' footprints are biggest on day one versus being ongoing producers of emissions. I'd love to hear your thoughts on global development, global consideration of you know, large-scale industrial technologies in general. Yeah, I think this is stuff that's way beyond my pay grade type of approach. But I think that what the rumblings are around border taxes on certain commodities so that you can't outsource your emissions of these major industries, I think that policy incentives can help commercialize prototypes 
So if you really want to influence your concrete emissions in California, let's say, by incentivizing for a long-term, say, 10, 20-year incentive to move the industry, I think those levers are probably really, really powerful in the same way they've used them for electric vehicles and things like that. But at this point, probably the most powerful levers are the ones in these heavy industries. And how can you incentivize them? If it's not clear that a billion-dollar cement plant is going to be profitable from day one, that investor of that plant needs some other mechanism to get there. And I'm not sure that the market will solve all of those things in the short term. We're hopeful that we would find Solugen-type companies in these spaces, which can do all of the things and better and cheaper, which I think is, is going to happen. We will find them. But they're still going to need thousands and thousands of other companies. And they may be on the cusp where it's not yet better or cheaper. So you've got those aspects and maybe different types of taxes. Like if you're going to build a carbon-heavy bridge, there needs to be some weighting. Like it shouldn't be the same because the burden on society is not the same. If you're going to use the innovations that are reducing emissions and are much less carbon intensive, there should be either some reward or some punishment on the other side. And I think these are some of the things that are being talked about. And these are the levers that will, will help change you know, the trajectory. lot to be done. Yeah, I suspect a lot of that will be some of the, uh, the major discussions at COP26 this year, to some extent. I want to tie all this back to your journey, which is, again, you've got this really broad humanities sort of generalist background. How have you personally educated and gotten up to speed on these highly technical issues? And what advice do you have for entrepreneurs who are motivated by these challenges, but also lacking in deep industrial background themselves? How should industry outsiders come tackle these things? Well, that's a perfect question because I'm a total industry outsider. Um, first of all, I feel like I'm super early in this journey. I think this is a five-year-plus journey to get to a competency that is of you know any respect. But the way I've started with most of this is listen to everything. There's plenty of stuff online. There's plenty of talks. There are institutes that are leading these discussions like uh, Mission Possible, which is focused on heavy industry. There are industry think tanks. There's one in Australia called High Temp which is, you know, a coalition of professors, thinkers, the industrialists from this hugely mining-intensive country, and they produce reports and white pages, and they're very hard to read to begin with, but that's the only way to get, I think, an initial foray into what are these things all about. So I've just kind of drowned in this type of content. I still feel like I'm drowning. Talk to lots of people, meet lots of startups who are inventing and and innovating in the future, because I learn a ton from that, because each of them have such deep and interesting approaches. But at the same time, going back to my point around this anxiousness of having new eyes, constantly having these fresh beginner mind and beginner eyes to all of these questions, so that I don't get all mired up in and get caught up in knots, because I imagine that if you've been in the space for a long time, it could be demoralizing and you could be caught up in knots. I think the last thing people need is venture investors caught up in the no's, you know, and knots of things like this is not possible and that's not possible. We need to be looking at it fresh eyes. So similarly, as a founder, it may seem extremely complicated and and impossible, and it probably 99% is, but the only way we're going to come up with these breakthrough ideas is coming at things with totally what seem like maybe ridiculous concepts and then testing them out and seeing how they go and, and how people think about them. So from a founder's perspective, I reckon interesting founding teams are going to be important. So people who have no experience. Well, if you look at Solugen, Garb is a doctor. Okay, so it's quite bizarre. Like his background, his medical background, 
and Sean has got a chemical and engineering background, but I think maybe there's something magical about this combination. So you have an optimist who's from a background who has the discipline and you have someone who's really fresh to it. I think those kinds of approaches might be really important in this type of innovation. Well, Derek, one last question and something I ask every guest on the pod, which is what's one piece of advice you have for entrepreneurs embarking on a climate-focused endeavor? Well, there are problems everywhere. And so there are opportunities everywhere. And I think keeping that distance from the problem to try and create solutions that might seem non-obvious is what we need as much as anything. And one of the things we've learned in the last few years of doing this is timing is quite important in this sector. Like timing, is the market ready to receive something? Are the policies maybe ready to embrace it? As you're thinking about a variety of different ideas as a founder in climate, I think one of the critical pieces is the timing right for this to be launched. And you know, a lot of the companies that are emerging now, I think would not have had a chance maybe even four or five years ago. And in the next couple of years, a lot of the companies that will come out wouldn't even have been possible maybe a year ago. So looking at the issues you're trying to tackle and really being honest about the timing, because as we've said, some of the ones we've covered today, like these might be 10 or 20 year questions. And if you start now, you might be far too early. And this comes from my own experience, starting a mobile company in 2001. iPhone didn't come to whatever it was, 20, 2007. And if you start too early or your timing is mismatched, you're having to just survive to meet the market. Whereas I think there's plenty of problems right now that the market is ready to meet. And that's where I'd be focusing on. Awesome, Derek. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Can't wait to see where you go next with the great work you're doing at AirVC. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening today. We hope you enjoyed the discussions. You can check out the episode notes for more info about our guests and resources we mentioned. See you on the next episode of the Techstars Climate Tech Podcast.